0: And so especially in the transportation space, understanding how things get paid for um, is really helpful because then you can figure out how to follow the dollars and make sure that you're setting your, yourself up not just to be totally beholden to venture capital, but actually looking at some of the different types of debt facilities that are out there.
1: Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous: the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And I'm
2: Kirsten Korosek, senior transportation reporter with TechCrunch.
3: And I'm Alex Roy, the uh, host and founder of the No Parking podcast, here with our awesome friend, Allison Malik, former venture capitalist, founder of May Mobility, and also an artist and musician. Hello, Allison.
0: Hi, guys. It's good to be with you today.
3: I'm so excited that you're here because we like to have a level-headed, sensible person with actual experience running a company, talking to us about the state of mobility and transportation.
2: Not just running a company, but in a former life, rooting out and finding the next great company too. So she's, she's seen it all.
3: Yeah. Why don't you <laughs> catch us up on your, on the, the his, your history? Because it is awesome. You were at, I guess, GM Ventures?
0: So I was actually started my career as an engineer at GM, um, working in electrification back in the the early days of the Volt, which was an awesome project. And so I got to bring new technology to market through that uh, experience, and that was pretty cool because it was a very small team when I started. So pretty unique experience within the automotive industry. And after a few years in engineering, that's when I moved to to ventures, and that's important because. A lot of times people who end up in corporate venture um, come out of the business side of the house, not the engineering side of the house. And so really understanding having been through product development gives you a unique perspective as you're out looking for technologies that you can bring to the vehicle. With GM Ventures, it was specifically focused on strategic uh, ventures. So that meant there had to be an alignment with the business unit. So I spent a lot of time with the R&D teams and things like that. And this was circa 2014, 2015, when I started looking at a lot of stuff around electric vehicles, connected vehicles. And back then it was ADAS systems, but also uh, eventually autonomous vehicles, uh, put together some, uh, some business cases for some of GM's key relationships in the space. Uh, and then as they made some key acquisitions, moved over to strategy to look at what the go-to-market for autonomy would be. And it frankly made no sense to me. Um, so when I met my co-founders at May Mobility, at Olson and Steve Vozar, I was super excited to hop over with a team that had good tech, strong background in robotics, but a more practical approach to how to bring the technology to market. And so that's really what we worked on at May Mobility, um, really trying to tie the technology with a business model. And uh, I grew. With that company, I grew the operations, the customer sort of sales marketing group, and then also finance, and um, led the the work that was done for the recent investment by Toyota. And then as that wrapped up, kind of looked at, all right, what's next? Uh, As an early stage COO, you always are building the thing that doesn't exist. And after the fundraise that had been consuming so much of my time, I realized that everything was sort of built. We had the structure we needed, and I had brought in great leaders um, that were kicking ass. So I wanted to figure out how to to dive in and help, but there really wasn't more building needed. So I decided that was probably the best time to step away and let the people that I had brought in come in and flourish. So I stepped away at, at the end of January and have been taking a break, but also thinking a lot about, with the unique perspective that I have in the industry, a lot about where do we go from here, which is now slightly different with everything that's going on uh, from a health perspective. So that's my brief uh, technical bio.
1: Yeah, no, and th- and that's I mean, I, hopefully people get why we want you on the show. I think everyone right now is is trying to figure out where things are are going. And and but before we kind of get into that, I want to go back into the past because there was um, something you mentioned just now. Um, sort of looking from the strategy side of the business of autonomous vehicles and and not it sounds like not finding a lot to to fall immediately fall in love with and then going to may mobility um starting that as a low speed shuttle company um what was it about that business model and or may's approach that that made sense to you whereas like other autonomous deployment scenarios weren't making as much sense
0: so this we have to to uh Go in our way back machines because this was uh 2016 and 2017, and at that time, anybody that was working in sort of big autonomy was talking about having thousands of vehicles out in robo taxi fleets by 2018 2019. So now we're talking about it with sort of the lens, the, the 2020 view that you get from that being the past. Um, back then. I like having had to put parts through validation, through automotive validation, it's like, no, there's no way in hell you're gonna have thousands of vehicles out in two years. Like just from a getting the the, the right level of safety work done. There's just not enough time. And on top of that, thousands of vehicles in RoboTaxi has just as, just assumed that Robotaxi was the best business model, but nobody actually like sharpened their pencils to to yeah. look at bringing it all together. What does it mean to run operations? What, you know, how many vehicles do you need in a market to really make sense? Like none of that was done. It was just sort of thousands of vehicles. This will make sense. Um, And with May, we got to start with a bit of a clean slate and think more tactically, honestly, about what can the vehicles do? What can we get validated sooner rather than needing the full five years or, you know, three to five years for a full vehicle program. Um, and then also thinking about what are the business needs. So I used to joke that we used a lot of business hacks. Uh, what's the best way to figure out what roads to map? Let the communities tell you where they need people to travel. And then, you know, you don't have to map every road in the city if people are really just moving down a couple of key corridors. So we had a lot of little business hacks like that that made it easier to launch a viable business in different cities.
1: Yeah, I mean, longtime listeners of the show are going to recognize a couple of themes that that we've sort of discussed a number of <laughs> times here, right? So, like, one of them is that automotive-grade validation stuff and how long that takes, um, and another is is that relationship with cities, right? And Alex, I know you particularly on that last one, <laughs> it's a pet a pet topic of yours, right?
3: Well, you know, uh, I got I spoke about this at. What was it? Micromobility, California last year, and I've never been invited back to speak on that topic. <laughs> um, I, I do why. I think I actually used a curse word to talk about how companies, I mean, I hate to name names, but I think it was Uber. Right? Who's Uber's uh, scooter uh, subsidiary? Who is it? Lime? Jump. 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 Whatever. Yeah, just about like how there's. This stuff is a
2: mobility are. podcast, Alex. You really know <laughs> that.
3: At this point, there are so many companies. Like... I mean, I can. Can I remember every single tire manufacturer that is like the fact the standard on a, on a car that's delivered? Like, who? You who probably do anything? actually know that. No, I, I, don't, I don't. I don't know. Um, oh, but okay, but there's so many. But but there. I mean, one
1: of the things that I think people are probably pretty angsty about right now is is you know <laughs> they won't all survive, right? Yeah. Um, and and I'm gonna get a lot shorter pretty soon. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious sort of now with the you you mentioned and I think you're absolutely right, Allison, that um you know obviously mindsets approaches views on autonomous vehicles specifically right now, but maybe mobility tech generally uh, is very different than it was a couple of years ago. Um, do you still have confidence that those things that drew you to my mobility back then um, are the kinds of things that will continue to allow like companies to survive and be relatively more viable than others to sort of survive um, a culling that I think everyone sees coming?
0: Yeah, I think when you get down to it, we really focused on business fundamentals from the start, as opposed to let's throw, you know, a billion dollars at the problem, and then hopefully with scale, we'll figure it out. Um, and that that kind of focus is just sound business practices. Now, it's still autonomy, so there is still is venture backing that's needed to help kind of get over the hump, but the way that we had thought about how to how to grow the company was to to keep that hump much lower in terms of how much money would need to be invested before the company could start bringing in money in a scalable way. And when you think about like relationships with cities, that becomes really important because when you look at scooter companies or even Uber and Lyft, there's competition and it's this like race to the bottom in terms of pricing, which is actually impacting their underlying business models pretty drastically. When you are able to work on enterprise contracts, you have more gnomes when you even go into the market. So you're not on this like race to the bottom. And I think that that actually helps to create a more stable environment. You can go out instead of getting venture financing, we were able to actually start looking at debt financing and not venture debt, but actually like, just like normal loans because people will underwrite large transportation operations. Okay.
2: There's, I, I have a bunch of questions. After I have here. a bunch of questions too, but go ahead. <laughs> um, but I want to back up for a moment because I, I am curious about the, the sort of approach, um, the lending approach and why you went the way you did. But to back up for a moment, um, you've been gone since January and in light of how the world has changed, does the business model that, and I understand you're not, you know, in the mix right now, although you're still on the board, correct? Uh, I am no longer on the board. You're no longer on the board. Okay. you're Um, free.
3: Thank goodness. You can speak honestly.
2: (laughs) Do you think that May Mobility's business model still works um, in light of how the world has changed or even in the long term? Like now that you pulled back, because I can, I know how it can be where you're in it can be difficult to necessarily see the forest through the trees. So now that you've had a couple of months, does
0: that approach work? First mile, last mile, when you think about transportation ecosystems, first mile, last mile is still a really tough challenge to solve. Getting people off the streets that aren't, you know, are just searching for parking, stuff like that. It actually becomes a planning tool. So I I do think as you look at sort of the the densification of cities, that approach of trying to just start with targeting that is actually really critical and helps to make overall transportation systems more efficient. As we look at the world uh, of shared transportation, I I did a lot of catching up last week, listening to lots of podcast episodes while uh, working on some projects. Um, I do think like the U.S. is bad at sharing transportation today in general. Um, But I do think that we're going to have to get better, you know, viruses aside. And when you look at places like China that, A, uses shared transportation, B, has some of the biggest cities in the many of the biggest cities in the world. And C, is kind of on the other side of this hump. People are back in buses, they're back in trains. And when we look at where the world is headed, figuring out those types of shared transportation ecosystems is really important. And helping people get into the higher volume systems is really, it's an economics challenge. And I do think that the approach that May and, and other shuttle companies are taking and scooter companies, honestly, scooters, bike share, all of those things that can bring more people into the high volume transit systems are important. The The challenge is figuring out the right business model to have sort of the economics that that makes sense for what you're managing. Right. So I get the
2: importance of it, but wanting something or understanding the importance of it for society and it working as a business is two different things. So, do you think that a business model like May Mobility has will still work? Or is that company or any company trying to do that approach going to have to shift and change? Because the other option that didn't seem like it really had a lot of viability which is, um, you know, more of the robo-taxi. It, the question is, which one works under this new sort of um, reality? Because I think it'll take people a while to get back to sharing anything. Or, and maybe you disagree. I, I don't know. Like.
0: I think it's going to take Americans a while to get back to sharing anything. Um, and I, I think that robo-taxi... Like human-driven robo taxi will have a role in that because n- no one that I've heard yet has a system that's ready to really roll out as an autonomous, like just full-service robo taxi. So by the time that's ready, I may, I hope we're through the second hump of whatever's coming from um, from this virus. Um, and so when we think about that, the immediate issues around shared. I think a lot of different transportation systems are going to struggle with that. Like May Mobility, buses, trains, planes, like all of them are going to continue to struggle as people get comfortable with the idea of sharing close personal space. Uh, I think in the short term, while autonomous systems are, are limited in what they're capable of, the either working directly with the city or a private enterprise that enterprise approach just makes it a lot easier than trying to go out and get a bunch of consumers to understand what your that your service exists what it is capable of how much you charge for what kinds of rides and like there's a lot of complex information that has to to be transferred if you wanted to do like a a fake robo taxi direct to consumer. So I think in the immediate term, it still makes a lot of sense. In 10 years, I think what's exciting is we're gonna see a second probably proliferation of modes leveraging autonomy. Autonomy is is a, a capability that unlocks other types of service. And as it gets better, other types of service can make more sense. But in these we're still in oddly enough, early days. Um
1: go ahead, Alex. I, it's a long one. Go ahead. Well, I, w- I was just going to um, mention, and maybe this was something Kirsten was going to get to too, but um, you mentioned uh, sort of a couple of different funding models here now. Um, so obviously, so VC and and sort of some of the issues with what VCs expect and, and the culture around it has been sort of a recurring theme in some of our discussions recently. Um, but you mentioned also sort of, um, you know, debt investors um, and how sort of certain business models they'd be willing to fund um, and then also, of course, you have strategic investors like Toyota um, that invest in May Mobility. I'm just—could you kind of break down those three different categories? Sort of what—what what are the strengths and weaknesses of those kinds of investors for for a company like May Mobility that's that's trying to weigh, you know, w- where to go for money, especially like at a time like this? Because I think I, my sense is that those three classes of investors have very different approaches, expectations. Uh, cultures around them. So yeah, anything we could do to shed light on that would be great.
0: I'm actually going to break it into four because uh, there's two different types of debt investors that we should talk about.
1: Even better.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so institutional venture, which would be sort of your sandhill road types of funds. Um, you get big names, you can get big checks. Um, but from my experience, they fundamentally don't understand the business. And even before I started with May Mobility, I was trying to explain to people that like anything to do with safety in auto tech is more similar to a medical device and like med tech investing than it is to a consumer or like cell phone type device. And so you have a bunch of VCs that are experienced, maybe in enterprise, were consumer, but very, very few of them have worked in automotive, have worked in safety systems, and it, it was kind of weird because, like in med tech, there's specific uh, investors that do med tech. Uh, except for weird cases, which we won't go into on this podcast because it's relevant. But that's how you know, like those are the investors that understand the approval processes. They understand the regulatory environment and they have the patience and understanding of the business models to be able to vet. When you look at auto tech and especially safety auto tech, like the... The VC community, although they will call on occasionally, you know, people to help them vet technology and things like that, they don't have the... Say it, say it. (laughs) The understanding of the industry. And so it was really interesting when we did our seed one and two rounds for May Mobility, they were, seed one was led by trucks, like Riley and team, like, they understand the auto industry. They were able to come in and really get what we were talking about. C two is led by Toyota AI Ventures and BMW I Ventures, pulling on the understanding of the industry. They were like, this this is in, this is an interesting approach. And then um, our A round was actually led out of New York, and that one actually pulled in a group that has the debt financing. Um, background more from transportation projects but they were like oh this this is interesting so it was still that distinct understanding of the industry that brought people in and it it was interesting we actually were raising our series a while bird and lime were raising um, as well as aurora and so you had everybody in the, the valley was talking about mobility and like why would we invest in shuttles when we can invest in scooters and Mind you, scooters get pulled off the roads in many cities for a good portion of the year, um, and it was really interesting of just a, a, a sense that the money was going to go to people who had a valley pedigree, whether or not they had launched a product, a product that had been used in, by
3: anyone. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alice, you're so, but you're so good at translating my <laughs> hesitating way. He <language. laughs>
1: just lacks your tact, Alice, and that's all
3: right.
0: And so, I, like, it really <laughs> helped for the B with Toyota because we knew they were interested. So I was like, "All right, let's let's run this process." Went out to the valley, talked with investors. Some of them had done scooter investments, and they were like, you know, scarred from that. Um, and it was interesting because they were at least. Were able to ask me more intelligent questions about sort of the operational cost model and things like that, um, but it just made it a lot e- easier because Toyota got what we were trying to do, um, and with their confidence, we were able to bring in other money around the table. But all through our fundraising, it it was kind of mind blowing because. Just before I had been on the other side of the table talking with some of these investors, looking at some very specific deals (laughs) that GM did. And like not 12 months later, I'm on the other side of the table and it's like, oh, well, I don't know. And it was weird because Ed and I were pulling so much insight from two of the biggest global automakers, one of the biggest AV deal, like all of this insight and people, well, you know. We're not really sure about what you guys are doing. It was a pretty bizarre experience.
2: When you were getting that pushback, was that from like strategic investors OEMs or more the traditional VCs that you're still talking about?
0: More traditional.
2: Okay, okay. So do you think I don't want to interrupt you as you go through the like all the different stages, but I at the end I am curious to know if you think that's why so many AVs have now shifted, AV developers have shifted their focus and trying just to get investment from strategic investors, because it's the only ones that seem to understand at all what is going on in the industry.
0: I will get to that. Well, let's put a pin in that one. Okay. Um, So so that kind of covered institutional versus uh, strategic. Um, With the debt side, there's traditional sort of Silicon Valley Bank you just closed around will give you a debt facility, debt financing, which is available to most startups that bring in venture capital. One of the things that I will not claim to be very smart about yet, but one of the things I'm kind of excited to use some of my time now to dig in and learn more about is large scale project financing. And that um, Keystone Capital, which was a part of Cyrus Capital, was one of the New York funds that came in on our Series A. And they were, so they were part of a private equity team that just did, does, you know, $25 billion projects, like huge transit projects. And, and the things that those types of uh, debt funders look at in terms of the underlying business are different than a venture debt, but actually are another pathway to scale if you set your company structure and your operation structures up right. And so, especially in the transportation space, understanding how things get paid for um, is really helpful because then you can figure out how to follow the dollars and make sure that you're setting your yourself up, not just to be totally beholden to venture capital, but actually looking at some of the different types of debt facilities that are out there. Uh, Usually that can't happen on consumer. So until you're like really, really big because people don't know how many people are going to use, you know, use your system or whatever. But on the enterprise contracts and the city contracts where it's sort of set, this is what it's going to be, that that starts to get towards that sense of comfort and confidence that can unlock a lot more capital. Um, So for all the startups out there, think broadly about the debt, um, especially as you get into your later stages. uh, CFOs and VPs of finance are great people to have around the table.
3: So are you planning to go and launch another startup yourself anytime soon? <laughs> What's your next move?
0: Um, I'm still thinking about what the next move is. Probably not launching my own startup mm-hmm. um, right now. It's it's a really big undertaking. It takes a lot out of you. Um, and I also, one of the things that I, I started to think about a lot, um, probably my last six months at May, you know, lots of, Plane flights to Japan and things uh, gives you a lot of time to sit back and think, um, but I, I still have an odd passion for the the auto industry now, sort of evolved into the mobility industry, and I I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the next couple of years for both auto and mobility companies that, if not harnessed well, will actually uh, negatively impact the overall economy in the U S
3: sweet Jesus. Could you bleed less corporate <laughs> Allison? Oh, okay. No. Well, uh, what are let, these uh, opportunities? Uh, so, yeah, are, you, are you saying that if deployments are done with shit, that traffic will get worse?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I think like the U.S. right now for for 100 years, we've been exporting cars and just imagining that everybody is going to follow along with our example of everybody has a personally owned vehicle. And, and the world has changed, but we haven't. And so when you think about even the economic impact of an Uber or a Lyft separate from an, an automaker... Their ability to sustainably run a business, which is still in question, um, drives a lot of economic opportunity back to the US that if their impact globally shrinks, we actually will have different types of jobs. There will be less spending on R&D and things like that. And I think it's a really unique time where there is so much innovation happening in the U.S. that if we can figure out how to harness it and do things like help reduce congestion in cities, we'll start to create mobility solutions that can be exported um, to other countries that are actually like the world's best. Because right now, the things that we export generally, I would not claim, all, you know, maybe it's the world best in its category, but it's not making the world easier to get around. And so I think pulling all the industries that we have in the U.S. together to innovate more uh, cohesively and coherently, we could do better. And so I'm trying to think more about what that looks like and how the U.S. could get back to really truly innovating on like world-class transportation systems versus what we got right now.
2: So does that mean that you are looking at doing more of a policy type job or lobbying or
0: advocacy of some kind? Um, I am looking at a couple of policy type jobs. I don't have experience in policy. I have a lot of industry experience. Um, So trying to learn um, more about what those types of opportunities look like. When I left May, I said I wanted to continue to kick the industry in its ass and really didn't have an appreciation for all the types of opportunities that could be out there. So I am doing my research. <laughs> so much, so much ask yeah. to kick. <laughs> do, Doing my research right now, but I, I do think looking at the policy landscape, there is a role um, for people that have been out there, sort of at the front lines and seeing lots of different aspects of this. I have released parts. I've worked on standards committees. I've worked directly with cities, I've worked with venture, like I've seen a lot of, not all, but a lot of how transportation comes together. Um, And so that's definitely something that I'm leaning towards. Yeah, I mean, it
1: seems like that's something that the space needs right now is right, is people who have seen the, these problems from lots of different angles, that perspective, that kind of 360 degree view is, it seems to me like that's where the solutions are going to come from. And a lot of what's held us back so far is that people have been made incredible advances by focusing on one specific area of that, but haven't necessarily seen that bigger picture of how it fits in with everything else. And that seems like kind of the recurrent theme of, of a lot of, of what you're talking about today.
0: And Alex I mean if you want to actually start the uh universal basic mobility like I would definitely start that startup with you <laughs> oh. And Kristen I, 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 was- I realize I didn't answer your question
2: yeah yeah no worries
3: <laughs> I, was, I, I was thinking of launching the universal basic mobility Foundation at one time I'm glad we didn't because post covid I think it's it's uh its agenda is slightly evolved.
2: Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up, let's provide some context here.
1: What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected.
2: And so it's time for us to grow up, just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience.
1: We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone.
2: Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So, please take a few minutes to visit slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Thanks.
3: So, but here's a question. All right. There was a story in Reuters a few days ago Morgan Stanley's predictions for a post pandemic world, specifically auto and transport. And one of the things they said was that automakers could no longer rely on a global supply chain. It's just too unreliable. So it seems to me that if American manufacturers had to reduce reliance on certainly Chinese manufacturing, and they had to source parts, say, just in North America or Europe or South America, that vehicle prices would go up, which would, I think, compel people to look at alternatives to car ownership. But at the same time, it seems like post-COVID, even if ride hail and shared options had a, a a fully like a ninety nine point like six nines reliable antiviral cleaning solution for vehicle interiors. There would still be a percentage of people who would not want to share vehicles. So, in between these two polls, what happens to car ownership? Like, 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 how radically different will pol- like city level policy need to be to keep people in motion?
0: Uh, having not written city policy, I'm not sure. But I, I think it's going to be a little bit of time post-COVID for people to be comfortable with sharing again. But I, as long as we're able to kind of wrap things up by May, which we'll see, knock on wood, May, June, um, I think by the end of the year, people's habits will be somewhat returned to what they were. There will There will definitely be people that are still afraid, um, to, to share and that percentage will go up, but I don't know that it'll drastically change how people get around because in cities, especially dense cities, like it's a pain in the ass. And if you've got even more people, regardless if cars are more expensive, because mind you, a lot of cars are actually, their leases are expiring over the next six to 12 months, which puts a whole bunch of vehicles out on the used car market, which plays into how much you can actually sell new cars for. Right, because um, cash
3: for clunkers is going to incentivize people to trade in these cars and stimulate new vehicle purchases.
0: Are they doing cash for clunkers again?
3: I think that's on the table. Isn't well,
0: it? it's been, it's They're been still talking about it. floated, but it's okay. not. I've been spending more time outside than reading the news. Probably <laughs> 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 a
2: good thing. Smart. Um yeah. Hey, I wanted to back up though, because we put a pin in a question that hasn't been answered yet. So um, just to go back to funding, and because I do think that a lot of listeners who are in startups are very interested in your views on that. So is the lack of understanding, by the way, which was echoed by Stefan, um, uh, the lack of understanding about, for one, I want to understand, what is the lack of understanding? Is it a technical misunderstanding? Is it the business model misunderstanding? Is it just transportation in general? Um, um what yeah. it, where is the lack of understanding and then secondly, which was my original question, is that why so many a v developers have gone um or are going more towards strategic investing because they are finding some understanding at the automaker level or maybe they're not
0: maybe they're maybe it's just as bad over there so I will start on the lack of understanding <laughs> I would say it was all of the above. Um, we would have, so my co-founder Ed, uh, is an an MIT PhD, uh, started the robotics lab at the university of Michigan, like internationally well-regarded, um, and had developed some very unique software for how autonomous vehicles work. And we would go in and VCs would actually debate him because they had learned something from somebody, you know, from, Watching a you know course online and would debate him like the fundamentals of how our systems work. were. They and watching
3: le- Lex Fridman's MIT AI podcast.
0: <laughs> I don't not the
3: one. Come on, you can tell us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was just like kind of nuts, and he'd be like, "Well, yes, this is the traditional way you would be taught to create an, an autonomous vehicle, but we turned it on. We turned it on its head, and here's how we at May Mobility do it." And it would just be like. It was so interesting because here you have somebody that is internationally well regarded in robotics, like known expert. And they'd be like, well, but your explanation doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't like translate back to this like textbook approach to how to do it, which was in and of itself frustrating. But Ed was super patient and like would spend, you know, spend a few hours sometimes. So that was Interesting. Or they, they wouldn't get it, but would kind of trust us on that. On the business model, especially during our Series A, we got a lot of people that were like, well, like Waymo and, and Cruise are going to do it. They have all the funding. They're going to do it. And when we would try to explain that, like, neither, neither of them are going to work directly with cities. Even if they do, some cities don't really like Google, which is a big part of Waymo and would choose not to work with them. And just like pointing out that in a seven trillion dollar market space, there will be more than two players, which just like a lot of VCs couldn't wrap their minds around that, which was crazy because it, it's like there's I realized that it hasn't applied to tech yet. But like there are anti-monopoly laws in the US <laughs> and one in two, you know, doesn't create not a monopoly um so it's just this weird distortion i think from how how the software industry works where you can get damn near to a full monopoly if not truly a full monopoly and 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 kind of translating that over to transportation and not really appreciating that like there are other regulations and other contracting devices that would not allow that world to exist um
1: do you, do you think that comes out of, of the sort of slugging average approach where they're kind of, you know, okay, nine of these are going to fail, but if the 10th is a 100Xer, then, you know, is that the sort of underlying strategic prerogative that drives that sort of worldview or is there something else going I on I think there? it's
0: just a lack of experience in other business models.
1: And maybe maybe an excess of confidence. <laughs>
0: yes. Oh, obviously this worked and got me, you know, my hundred X in enterprise sales software. Right. Um, why wouldn't it work in autonomous transportation? So I think it's more an overconfidence and trying to fit the success that they had seen previously from SaaS startups and consumer startups onto auto tech that really didn't make any sense. Um, so those I'd say are the three biggest areas of of lack of understanding and and once they kind of threw out the well Cruz and waymo are gonna do it, they didn't really even want to dig in on the underlying business model, which was pretty straightforward and they would get pretty quickly um and i I think that the reason that like just so many misunderstandings and like mismapping of previous successes onto this industry is part of the reason why you do see a lot of AV technology companies working with strategics. Um, they're slow. It is a painful negotiating process sometimes, but at the end of the day, you've got somebody that actually understands the business Um, And understand and generally can understand the focus that you're trying to take in the business, which just makes it a lot easier to, to get the deal done and to not be pressured to grow in ways that don't make sense or go after partnerships that don't make sense. There's just a better understanding of the business. Do
1: strategics bring things other than money to the table? Like you know, we've seen sort of startups partnering with with, I guess, more with tier ones, but to kind of do the you know bring their tech up to automotive grade. We've seen a number of examples and sensors and other other things. Um, and so they have that validation capability. Obviously, they have manufacturing capabilities. They have they have assets that are not just cash. Um, are, are those a, a factor in this or is it sort of just a nice extra?
0: Um, it depends on the strategic for how much they have to bring to the table. And so I think that's something that's good to have in sort of like a, an early conversation with the strategic, uh, talking with the venture partner to really understand what do they have to have? Cause sometimes, it, um, it's a slightly older model before everybody was doing automotive investing um, that it was required to have the strategic alignment figured out before an investment could be made. And in some cases for some funds, that's still the case. So it's good for any founder to really make sure if they're talking with a strategic, which universes have to align in order to get the investment approved. Um, Cause, and we had another one that we had been talking to who, didn't think that they had to have the um, business collaboration figured out before the investment. But then like last minute, as they were going to their investment committee, uh, realized that they did need it. Need it. And so as a, as a founder, like really harping on those investors to say, what do you need? Not just like what is nice, like when you go into your investment committee, who has to have signed off? What data do you need to have reviewed beforehand um, just to, to get that out of the way? And you can kind of create your own checklist and drive the process. Uh, generally, strategic VCs are good at driving their internal process, even if they need other business units um, bought in. But as a founder that's trying to get the damn deal done on time. Uh, it's good for yourself to also like write down what are the steps that they need to follow internally and kind of push them to get their own steps done.
3: I'm surprised Alex doesn't have something here. Well, I really (laughs) want to go back. I really want to go back to, I had a little list, hang on a second, uh, to this, Um, this Reuters thing. (laughs) Do you, do you believe that models like May and Voyage um, can can grow without retrofitting UV cleaning solutions to the vehicles?
0: I don't, I think that like retrofitting UVC, I don't know what I'm making no claims about any company strategy here. So disclaimer. All right. But so can, any, can anyone scale? UVC or getting the cars clean. I think you have, you had to, have, maybe not UVC, but you had to be disinfecting your shared vehicles, I would hope, beforehand. Like we we disinfected our vehicles multiple times a day. In the COVID world of like just very rampant um infections, the approach would need to change. But if you're a fleet operator with a public vehicle, you need to be cleaning your vehicle many times a day. So that there's there's already Infra- some infrastructure for some companies. I can't make s- claims about everybody in place to do that cleaning. And I think, uh, Alex, to your point, they're pro- it probably needs, they need to figure out how to do it more frequently. So maybe it is UVC that can flash the vehicle when nobody's in there um, or bring the vehicle back to base to be able to, to just Lysol and Clorox the heck out of it. Bringing a vehicle back and forth to a
2: fleet, a hub would obviously like kick into or cut away from um, any positive economics around around the vehicle because you're losing time. So then you're forced to do uh, a few things, potentially. One would be having a bunch of little mini hubs around that are much closer to, um, you know, and, and then only having those vehicles have a specific geofence, keeping it really close. Um. And so all those parking lots that are going to turn into parks in the world of AVs don't. They become parking lots or fleet hubs, mini fleet hubs. So that's like one scenario. And the other scenario is like sort of some sort of automated tech that, you know, that like Alex mentioned. So I was wondering when you were at May still, knowing that you weren't living, none of us were living in the COVID world yet, but were you looking at those types of things, like looking for startups or some new tech for automating cleaning, just anything to make that that piece of it more efficient. I know you were on fixed routes, so um, you know that might have allowed you to pull one vehicle offline and put a new one in. Uh, I'm wondering if you were looking at either the tech angle side of it or just different ways of being more efficient on the like fleet management cleaning side of things.
0: That so sensor cleaning was a higher priority than interior cleaning in part because we still have the safety drivers. So, and we didn't want them to get uh, fatigued. So we would bring them back for a break every couple of hours. And when they came back for their break, the car would get Lysol wiped down, disinfected before it went back out. Um, So it's definitely something that 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 the company will have to look at as they go in the future. Uh, When I was at GM working in the venture team, I I was actually there was a company. I don't remember what they're called because this was almost six years ago. But um, there was a company that had developed an LED that could produce very focused UVC light, um, which is it's hard to get LEDs to to emit that specific spectrum. Um, and they had the patent around it, and we were looking at how to how to integrate that into vehicle interiors, sort of like R and D stuff, not product development, but it was absolutely a part of the the types of material and electronics work that was being done.
1: So I, I have kind of a broader question. I kind of want to zoom out on this issue because obviously, right now with COVID, there's a lot to figure out, and and we're sort of still in the midst of it. It's hard to get perspective on it, but I think this is part of a broader issue. Of sort of aligning um, new business models with um, new product, and I feel like that's it's it's been kind of the the last few years this sort of wave of mobility tech. There's been a surprisingly a surprising absence of this, in, in my view. And, and the example I always think of about that when I think about this is is Car2Go. And when Car2Go launched in Portland, it has smarts. And I think it was because they'd federalized the smart and they weren't selling and they had to put them in a fleet somewhere and they dumped them. And it turned out they were an amazing vehicle for sharing because they were simple. They were easy to park. They were small. You could find them everywhere. You could get in them and you could drive. They were just perfect for that application. And then, and then you know, the, those vehicles aged out of the fleet and they brought in, the, you know, the, the next round of vehicles that they had a, a glut of were these like CLAs and uh, whatever sort of small, compact, more, more traditional Mercedes type of car, much more complicated, bigger, and, and the service just fell apart. It went from being a really popular thing, especially amongst my age group in Portland, to, to something not at all. And, and to me, the lesson was, you know, it's crazy to try a different business model without a product that actually fits it. And I feel like Uber and Lyft are still doing that. They're still driving personally owned, you know, vehicles designed for personal ownership. In this shared application, so so at May to bring it back to your experience, you know, you guys were did an amazing job of of identifying a really different form factor for the product, um, something that was affordable, that was efficient, that was cheap, you know, like easy to to get out there. Um, I'm just so I, I'm just kind of curious at a high level sort of what your thoughts are about this. Obviously, COVID plays into this because we need to be designing for some of these hangups and phobias and things that people are developing and and real concerns, by the way. Um, but, uh, but, but just generally, like, do you, do you share with you that there hasn't been enough alignment of new business models and new pro- and, and products to fit them? Is that something that just takes too long because, or takes longer because of, uh, hardware takes longer to develop than, than software and, and mobile apps? I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts about that.
0: So I think from like a, how to fit products into services, part of what, lo- <laughs> um, Part of the challenge, I think, is the timescale that it takes to develop a new product um, and needing to have confidence in what the service is and how it will work before you want to really invest the billions of dollars, frankly, that go into a new physical vehicle. And I think that's probably some of the issues that like, Daimler had with the car to go example, Um, they aren't worried. They weren't actually worried about fundamentally having a service offering that made sense. They were worried about moving vehicles, which became evident by not paying attention to what people liked because they could have easily like snuck a couple uh, Mercedes into the fleet, seen, watched how people reacted. Did they use those more, or did they use um, the smart cars more? And like realized that they didn't and kept the service going, but it it wasn't about the service. It was about moving the vehicles. And so I think that's where it gets interesting. Even for Uber, you know, they talk about wanting to be an AV operator in the future because that'll help their business model. But right now they have all of these externalized costs that they don't have to deal with. Um, And that's magical (laughs) uh, to not have to, to have all of those assets that need all of the upkeep and things like that. And to just assume that you can flip a switch and, and have another f- fleet of vehicles that someone else is managing for such low cost. I'm really curious to see how that plays out. Like you might be able to get a rental car company that wants to take that on, but I also am not hundred percent convinced. Um, and then when you look at automakers now trying to figure out what platforms to develop, I think the most interesting things that I've been seeing are the efforts towards empty boxes, because you can really innovate the inside of an empty box. It's not very inspiring looking outside, um, but if you can figure out the the drivetrain, so what if it's battery or, or gas? Um, you can figure out the drivetrain, and you can get the exterior shell and make sure that that's figured out and crash rated and all those things, once those units are innovated together, you can do a lot on the interior. Uh, And so that's looking at the um, electric skateboard that GM's working on or even the e-palette that Toyota is working on and, and even looking at Ford early on making the investment in their transit van really started to create these platforms that you could build different things on top of. But from an auto product perspective, it has to be able to go. So you need some sort of power system and it needs to be roadworthy. And a lot of that comes to the chassis so how the power system actually fits into the car and then the structure around it.
1: That's really interesting. So it's like the the box is the new skateboard almost. It's like the skateboard was sort of step one and then that box is step two and and you sort of have layers of modularity on top of layers of modularity almost.
0: I think I'm curious, I'm excited to see over the next probably 15 years, because it takes five years to develop a car, uh, how much more flexible those things become. I think it's actually going to be uh, an interesting renaissance and in the ability to hopefully turn designs over in a different way.
1: Was was there ever um, a point at May where you considered not building your own custom or not having your own custom unique vehicle? Like where you thought about adapting Chrysler Pacificas or, or whatever else that you, you see other f- folks doing? Or, or was it from the get-go you knew you had to do it the way that you did it?
0: So we modified the Polaris GEM, so we didn't even actually have our own specific, uh, specifically built vehicle. With the GEM, um, we it's a low-speed electric vehicle, so the changes that we would make to the car uh, were changes that didn't change its FMVS, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard Classification. Uh, so it was a lot easier to make the modifications and put the vehicles out Um in higher numbers, where if you're modifying a traditional passenger passenger vehicle, the types of modifications you make for an AV do start to um, interfere with the certifications. And so then you have to go back and work with NHTSA on getting approval. So that, it was another mm-hmm. business hack.
1: So, so you knew low speed from the get-go, you, so that, it, that sort of narrowed it down for you? Yeah. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, the, you know, supposedly, I guess they're they're starting rulemaking on occupantless, zero occupant vehicles. I don't know what the right regulatory term for it is, um, but I know Neuro is leading the charge. We had David Estrada, their chief legal, legal officer, on, and um, and certainly in in the era of COVID, as we've discussed, um, there's some appeal, right, of having I mean, just doing the delivery, not not having people leave the house at all, um, bringing things to where people are. Um, what do you have? Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, clearly, there's an opportunity for some for some pretty dramatic sort of product you know shift and how you even think about products on a very fundamental level
0: i so i i will admit I've been staying under my rock <laughs> since the end of january um so i've uh only kept up with that in a pretty limited way uh specific to whatever they're specifically lobbying for, but I do think that especially with package delivery where you aren't worried about occupant protection, if we can start to get a different classification set, our roads could start to look varied in a way that would be really useful. Um, So I think it's exciting, especially when you look at like other, other countries, there's just different types of package delivery and things like that and different size vehicles for different uses. And I think that those types of things are really important, both for us to get the types of service that is most useful for people, like right-size the delivery vehicle, um, but also to make sure that we're at the cutting edge of innovation and what could be adopted elsewhere. Because if you look, there's a company based out of Ann Arbor called Refraction uh, that builds on an electric bike chassis, and that the the vehicle form factor is significantly different, and I, I think being able to see more vehicles like Noro's, even down to the size of like a Refraction vehicle, just creating that diversity on the roads in a way that's safe and understood is going to be a really exciting uh, next step in diversification of transportation.
2: Do you think that this, um, just looking at the delivery piece of uh, the autonomous vehicle industry, if it becomes popular enough and the, and it also gets through some of the technical and regulatory you know, hoops that it has to go through, that it could end up you Know maybe unintentionally, but end up changing how our streets are laid out in a way that bike lanes are actually kind of like a multi use AB delivery plus bike lane and they become bigger. Um, that sounds safe. Well, <laughs> it's well, it, yeah. I mean, uh, that's my question because the reaction, it sounds political, right? I mean, it sounds political too, right? Like, like bike bike people are not fans of the ideas. Of, right. Or, but then of they don't belong. But then delivery bots don't belong on sidewalks potentially either. Um, or there's been, we've seen problems with that. We've seen problems even with robots blocking a person in a wheelchair, We that, that Twitter. So, so where do they go? And then it gets, you know, pulling way back becomes this fundamental question of like, what is our cityscape or streets supposed to be for and who who gets what? I just wonder if, I, and it's very early to even be having this conversation, really, but I kind of like it anyway. Um, but I'm curious what, you're, what you think will happen because Refraction uses a bike lane.
0: They use the bike lane when it's available, but they don't have to use it all the time.
2: So they can go into the street then?
0: Yeah. yeah. And I, I think. What I am most excited about in all of these discussions is is nerdily the big picture stuff because tech is advancing at such a pace that like the road paint can't keep up. Um, it's forcing a lot of great conversations in communities about who are the roads for? How should we be using them? And it's coming. So there's like the tech side of should robots be allowed in bike lanes? But at the same time, like, Technology aside, you have uh, cities adding congestion pricing um, to be able to enter the densest areas. You have uh, the fights over just adding bike lanes in general. Uh, In Detroit, they've been added on quite a few roads. And it was really interesting because motorists got very upset, but it's like a six lane road. And it came down to like four lanes (laughs) and there's still, you know, still not enough traffic really to keep it completely backed up. But I, I think that there's this idea that like the gas taxes pay for roads. So like roads need to be for cars at, at the same time that we've got electric vehicles, you know, struggling is in the ways that they are, but they've got electric vehicles which are getting taxed for not paying gas taxes. Like we're, we have to really, Kind of hit the reset button. And that's I don't have an answer, but that's absolutely some of the stuff that I'm excited to hopefully take more time to learn more about so I can have deeper, more informed thoughts about what types of policy tools exist and like what is the future of road funding in the U.S. look like?
1: That's a huge question. And and it seems like there's an interesting parallel to what you were talking about earlier about the challenge of matching sort of software and new business model innovation speed, which is very fast, with then on the product side, much slower, much more expensive. But then when you get to the infrastructure piece, and all of these are all intimately linked together, it's even longer, slower, and more expensive. And then also you have, as you say, these sort of political questions that people have to answer, which only adds to that uh, that slow clock cycle. So um in some ways it's funny because the you know our expectations about the tech side have been off very clearly, <laughs> right? But at the same time like I don't I don't know that that's as bad of a thing as people make it out to be because there's so much of these other slower things that still have to kind of get worked through before we can really deploy these new technologies in in really meaningful sustainable transformable way, or transformative ways, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that I would agree. Uh, People got way out ahead of the tech, but it really sparked the curiosity and fear uh, in planners and city officials and transit officials and DOT officials to start to figure out, like, what does this future look like? And I think that as a byproduct of the over-enthusiasm is a great one because... Like even when I would go talk with communities when I was at May Mobility and they'd be like, "What can we do to get ready for AVs?" and I I would talk about like bike lanes and sidewalks, <laughs> like just give give everybody their place to be safe and actually it'll make it safer for for all vehicles. It was this like unsexy answer, but the the shiny bright shiny object of tech allowed us to like bring in some pretty. Basic and fundamental approaches to to designing communities for people and not cars. Um, so I, I hope that continues.
1: Cool. Well, that is probably a pretty good place to leave it, um, since this is uh, we're we're running out of time. Um, Allison, thank you so much for for making the time. This has been uh, every bit as as fascinating as I knew it would be. Um, so this is great. If if people want to follow uh, you, hear more of your. Uh, compelling insights into this uh, fascinating, complex world. Uh, Where's the best place for them to do
2: that online?
0: Uh, So uh, I've been fairly inactive on Twitter, but I promise I'll pick that back up. That's at M underscore Allison, A-L-I-S-Y-N. And I am one of those old school people that does keep up on LinkedIn as well. So you can hit me up there.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, uh, again, just absolutely fascinating stuff. And uh, we look forward to uh, speaking with you again on another episode of the Atonicast.
0: Thanks, guys. This was great.